0: Well, good morning. I hope you uh, are excited about what God is doing and what He's doing in the life of our church, what He's doing in our community, and specifically this weekend, what He's doing in the life of our student ministry. Uh, I have to guess that there is um, probably a woman that woke up this morning and told her husband, I'm thinking about wearing kind of a, a teal this morning. What do you think about that? He said, go ahead and wear it. Nobody else is going to be wearing it. And then you get here, and uh, a third of the church is decked out into it. it. was an incredible weekend, and from what I understand, Garrett, there's more to be baptized tonight. Is that right? Yeah, and so we're, we're excited about what God is doing. If you're, if you're a guest or visitor, maybe you're not very unchurched, or you're, you're not very churchy, you might think, why in the world do they sing about something so grotesque as blood? Because in the church, we're used to that. We've talked about this before. We... Um, It's commonplace. And the reason we do that, Ephesians 1, 7 tells us, In him we have our redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, no man, no woman, no child may enter into the presence of God. And so we're excited and we are grateful that it will never lose its power. Well, if you'll turn to the book of Hosea, some of you are probably still turning because it's one of the least read, least marked books probably in your Bible. It's probably very crisp. And just to kind of give you an idea, maybe a little bit of background, Hosea um, was a, uh, a prophet. He was the first in the Bible, it's the minor prophets, and it really doesn't deal with the content, meaning it's less important, but rather the length of the book. He was a prophet for 40 years, and his, his prophecy was he was warning them of in, approaching and oncoming judgment, ladies. You'll be pleased to know that this is a little bit of a love story, and it's actually a beautiful love story. And fellows, just hang on with us because it's not just as I told our pastors' prayer partners this morning a a, a parable to illustrate a point. This legitimately happened, and so God is going to ask Hosea to do something to illustrate His relationship with His people that would be very, very uncommon. He's asking them to take a, a wife by the name of Gomer. And Gomer is not on the thousand most popular baby names this year or really any year. And in a moment, you may have a better understanding of why. But when you think about, like, love, you think about marriage. And that God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. And as I said a few weeks ago, we know that obviously there are times that Possibly decisions are made by us, or maybe decisions are made for us, and we can't escape sometimes those decisions. Sometimes we can't escape um, the the fallout that happens because of the decisions that people make in our lives. But we know that God is a redeeming God. I'm grateful for marriage. I hope that you're grateful for marriage. Um, it, It deals with God's desire to redeem the nation of Israel. Because over and over and over again, the people of Israel would would draw close to the Father, and then they would turn their back and walk away. And then they would draw close to the Father again, and they would turn their back and once again walk away and be unfaithful to them. And even me talking about a love story and marriage and unfaithfulness, that probably stirs up emotion in some of you because you've been the recipient. Of relationships like that and that's surely not my intent. My intent today is to show that God is a God of redemption. That God is a God of of pursuing passion because he loves his people. Now I've said all the time, we have to safeguard our marriages, men and women. We have to be diligent and vigilant about that. I can't imagine what it would do to my wife if I was to do something silly and break her heart and bring shame to Her, our children, and the body of Christ. I also can't imagine what she would do to me. (laughs) And sometimes, as our pastor likes to say, low motive is better than no motive. And so secondary motivation at times will keep you out of trouble. As a kid growing up in the dysfunction that I grew up in, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But I knew that I wanted to be a good dad. I knew I wanted to be a good husband. And that is a daily pursuit and I, more than that, I want to be close to Christ. And if I'm filled with the Spirit, then everything else flows through that filter and allows me to make decisions that are going to be Christ-honoring and they're going to honoring other people. But what you don't know is that my great-grandfather was shot by my great-grandmother and killed right here in Doherty County because he had cheated on her. My grandfather left my, my dad, my aunts and uncles, and my grandmother and moved to a different city and started a whole nother life with a new wife and new children And completely left him high and dry. And so for me, when I read this, I I see the parallels and I understand the the pain as as many of you do in similar situations. You can see that God's love is is put on full display. Just kind of a little bit of background of Israel. First, when you start reading in the Old Testament, you read of a man named Abram that would eventually become Abraham. And God said, I'm going to bless the world through you and through your seed. And and I'm going to love the people to flow through me through the nation of Israel. And I want Israel to be a conduit of blessing to the whole world. Then we go to Moses and Joshua and King David and Solomon who died in 933. And three years later, in 936, the nation of Israel was completely divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. And on steps the stage of Hosea. And he's going to address these people. Let's meet together in Hosea 1. Verses one through nine. It says the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beer, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, and the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, "Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord." So he went and took Gomer the daughter of Diblam. And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel, to forgive them all. But I will... Have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Then when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore another son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. When you think about dating and growing up, there are probably people that you dated that your parents cared for, and there are probably people that you dated that they didn't care for. Gomer, fellas, was not the kind of woman that you wanted to take home to meet your mom. When I was talking to our our new children's pastor, Mark Scardino, this week, I walked in, I said, Mark, by all accounts and purpose, you are a a much more conservative person than I am. How do I handle this with first through fifth grade in the room? He said, Pastor Stephen, I think what I would say about Gomer is that she was a shady lady. And so I thought if that was good for Mark Scardino, it was good for me. I mean, Hosea is a man who is respected. He might not be loved. He may not even be feared. But he is known to be a prophet of God. And he has had a message warning these people. He's preaching to these people. He's teaching these people. He's constantly waving the warning flags to these people. And then he goes out and he takes a woman who, by all accounts of purpose, is paid for unethical and immoral services. On the worst case scenario, on the best case scenario, she was just not very savory. And they begin to have children. And he named, they named their children uh, Jezreel. if you read in Second Kings, you understand. And the people would have understood. They would have understood that this is a horrible place. It would have been sending a very strong message. To the people that were around him. The second child, lo huramah, means no mercy. The third child is not my people saying, I am not your God. And so over and over and over again, he's taking this woman. You know that he's being questioned by the people at the synagogue. You know people are wondering what's going on. Why is he doing this? And the father all the while is saying, I'm asking you to do this because it represents me As the bridegroom, pursuing my church, pursuing the bride of Christ, pursuing the people that I love so dearly. The first thing that we see in this passage is that God's love expects loyalty. It's all God knows is loyalty. It would almost be uh, right to say if it was true, but we know that God has no faults, but God loves his people to a fault. Even when they don't love him, he pursues them. He is loyal to them. And he calls them, he calls us to be loyal back. God remains even when we walk away. And, and something that, that you see over and over again, and from time to time when you're sharing the gospel and having conversations with people, whether it be on a plane or at your work, people will say stuff like, I, I love God, I just don't like the church. I, I, I kind of I understand Jesus, I like the teachings of Jesus and the principles of Jesus, but I, I don't like the church, I've had a bad experience We can't love God and hate his church. This coming week, uh, Rebecca and I will celebrate our 15th anniversary. And 15 years ago, we stood at an altar. Brother Michael was kind enough to do our wedding ceremony. I can't imagine for a millisecond after we were married for someone to come up to me. At the reception, and say, "Stephen, man, I'm so excited for you. I've always liked you. You're a great guy. We've been friends a long term, a long time. But I can't stand your wife. I don't want to be around her. I don't want to talk to her. Even her name grates me. The last thing I want to do is to see her. I just, want, I just want to let you know that. You see, in, in David Platt's book Radical, he said that the church." is god's plan a to reach the world we are not perfect and you may have had a bad experience at a church you may have had a bad experience at this church but that's no reason to turn your back on the body of christ i've had bad experiences at at at, at, um, service stations i still go because i need gas has anybody just had awesome experiences at the hospital I mean, we were all born at one, right? If you were born in here, you were born at Phoebe, at your house, or on the way to Phoebe. I mean, that was it. That's the only option. <laughs> We've had some bad experiences at places, but you know what it is? It's a cop-out. It is an absolute, the cheapest way to get out of the conversation. I can't say I love God and hate the things that he hates, he loves, I can't stand with him in solidarity and say, these are the things, these are the things that I love and I'm going to stand for, but I'm not with you on this. The church will always be imperfect because it's filled with imperfect people. You're one of them. And there are times that, that we need to give people chip, uh, uh, grace chips. We need to throw them a, a grace coin because I can promise you there's going to be times that I need them too. There's this idea, I think, um, when I was in student ministry over 13 years, inevitably I would have parents from time to time, I know you probably don't believe this, but I would have parents from time to time uh, not like me for various reasons or not like the way I was doing this or not like the way I was doing that, and that's okay, and inevitably something would happen in their child's life, and they would run me down in front of their, their spouse or their families. And I would know because sometimes friends would come over and kids talk, and I would always tell parents, hey, don't believe everything you hear about me, and I won't believe believe everything I hear about you. But inevitably something would happen in the life of that student, and the parent would come to me and want me to try to intervene. And I've been rendered powerless by you for a couple of years now. And now you want me to speak truth into the life of your kid. They're not going to hear it from me. Because what I have to say carries no weight because you've told them for so long that what I do is wrong and how I do it is wrong. And that's the way it is with the church. That we want to raise our children collectively under the the canopy and the body of Christ. And you know as well as I do, there are things I will tell my kids a million times and one of you can tell them one time and they'll come to me and they'll be like, that person is so wise. I'm just like... I've been telling you for three years, 14 times a day, you don't listen to me, but you'll listen to him. He's a sophomore in college. (laughs) But there's this idea, and this is not meant to be fear. but there's this idea that you see that our inability and unwillingness to obey the Father, even the most basic of principles, will end up costing our children and sometimes our grandchildren. That we don't sin and disobey in a vacuum. That my sin affects other people. Your sin affects other people. My disobedience affects other people. And when God's calling us to obey, We primarily should do it out of the overflow and the love of who God is and what he's done and just out of his goodness. Even when life doesn't make sense, we should obey the Father. But as a byproduct of that, what happens is the people that we love the most that watch us, watch us day in and day out, even when we don't think they're paying attention, they see our faithfulness and in turn that spurns them on to greater faithfulness. Hosea 2, 4, I'll read it. It says, upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are a children of unfaithfulness as well. I love the, the language and the metaphors that, that the Bible, the writers, uses to describe the Father. And you see that he loves family and he loves marriage and he loves the sanctity of it because he, the verbiage he uses to describe our relationship with him, that we are the bride of Christ the bridegroom is eagerly awaits his return. The second thing we see in this passage is that God's love invites pain. What do you mean God's love invites pain? I mean for the broken, the downtrodden, those people in this room and around this world that feel like they're far from God, that they have nothing to offer. That surely God wouldn't receive someone like you. That he couldn't love you because you don't feel lovable. That he wouldn't love you because even maybe your parents or your siblings or your spouse didn't or doesn't love you. God's love invites pain. He understands pain. And even more so, it should not make you think that God won't love you, but it should cause a sense of wonder that I can't believe that he loves me. That he draws me and he draws you to ourselves, With all of our baggage, with all of our sin, with all of our shame, with all of our habits, with all of our vices. With all the things that we struggle with, with the things that we think about, that if they were to come up on the screen right now with our name at the bottom, that we would be horrified. With all of those things, God draws us in and he calls us. To himself, This first child is Jezreel, second child, no mercy, third child, I am not your God, you are not my people. This is an accurate picture of what was going on in the nation of Israel. And God has a rich history of taking broken pieces and turning them into masterpieces. God works with messy people because that's all he's ever had to work with. None of us are as close to God as we've ever thought that we are. Matter of fact, I heard someone say a long time ago, and it, it, as many times as we've heard Vince Habner quotes, it, I think it was him, he says, the older I get, the longer I live, and the closer I get to Christ, the further away I realize that I am. I remember as a, as a kid, I would eat with my papa and my mama. Anybody ever have a pawpaw and a mama? If, you, if you're a mama, mamas can cook. They might not can do anything else, but my mama could cook. Her name was Blanche. Isn't that a great mama name? I had Lester and Blanche. And I remember sitting at their their breakfast table, lunch table, dining room table, even as a lost child, not going to church. And when my Pawpaw would start praying, he would start crying. Every time. Every time. And I would just look at him. And right before he said amen, I'd close my eyes and pretend like I'd had my eyes closed the whole time. But I would watch my papa cry every time. And I tried to ask my mom when I was a kid, and she tried to tell me, but I don't think she really even understood either. But when I became a Christian, I asked my papa, I said, papa, why do you get so worked up? Why do you get so emotional when you pray? Because when you pray, it seems like you're really talking to God. They called me Stevie. He said, Stevie, he said, as I've become an old man, I realize what a horrible sinner I've been and how good God has been in saving me. And he said, I can't help but be moved to tears. When we know that God invites us in, and you may feel like you have nothing to offer the kingdom. Hey, that's the baseline. You're exactly right. Neither does anybody around you or I. God doesn't need us. God wants us. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that he invites pain. He doesn't say, hey, clean up. You remember when Jesus burst onto the scene, there were plenty of clean men that were leading the synagogues at the time. He didn't come to heal the well. He came to heal the sick. There are people that knew how to keep all the rules and be good and be moral. God's not asking us to be moral. God's asking us to be available and obedient to who He is. He invites the pain and the mistakes and the bumps and the warts and everything that's in our life. The third thing we see in this passage is that God's love doesn't follow logic, it doesn't make sense. Can you imagine his mother-in-law? I can't believe, I'm so excited, maybe Gomer's getting her life on the right track. You know, she's marrying the prophet. She's cleaning up. Everything's on the up and up. They, they named him what? what they name her? What was his name? It was a message the entire time. You see, Gomer had begun to, she slipped back into her past. And we'll get into that in the next couple of weeks. But she slipped back. She ended up leaving Hosea. A man who put his obedience in the hands of the father, but his reputation in the hands of everybody around. And can I tell you something, guys? A hundred times out of a hundred times out of a hundred times. If you will obey the father and not worry about what those people around you have to think, you will come out all right. You see, Gomer had a bed, but she didn't have any rest. She had entertainment. She had no peace. She had a life, but she was not living. We look at this passage, and you can see that man's love is based on contract, but God's love is based on covenant. Our whole world system is based on this. You go to school, and you do real well, and you'll get scholarships and go to a nice college, and Walk across the stage with gold tassels, they hang around your neck. I can promise I did not have the gold tassels. I don't have those. And it's okay. Stay in school, kids. You go to a good college and you get a degree Well, at least it used to work and you get out and you had a job at that point, right? Remember the good old days? And so you, hopefully you'll get a good job and you'll make a good living and then you marry someone and, and maybe you have two and a half kids and you have a nice, a nice house and, and all these things. You live this great life. That's kind of, there's so much more than that. And one of the greatest tools of the enemy, students, I know you're tired, but listen to me. One of the greatest tools of the enemy is for you to live for things that only matter in this lifetime. And when we do that and we pursue those things, what happens is we undercut God's greatest desire for our lives. That we're completely earthly minded. That our, 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 our eyes are focused on the here and the now. Guys, I can tell you this church and every church and every community around the world are littered with broken hearted people that have become disenfranchised with the here and the now. And if I spend my entire life trying to live for 74.6 years if you're a male and 76.8 years if you're a female on average lifespan, I spend all of my life and I work really, really hard and I want to make the best life for myself and my kids and my grandkids right now, Scripture says you have received your reward in full. God loves us out of covenant relationships. You see, Gomer had left her home, but she had not left his heart. And there were times when Israel would over and over and over again turn her back on the Father. After he would redeem her and redeem her and offer love and restoration. The fourth thing we see in this passage is that God's love has no limitations. God's love has no limitations. Turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 16. Listen to what the Father says. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will be called my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creepy things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth to you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will, listen to this, and I will sow for her myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God we see that God's love is supernatural even when other people's loves are superficial that it doesn't make sense why God loves us the way that he loves us but I can tell you that he does and this is not just some some book steeped in antiquity that it is just as relevant today as when the ink was wet That while God is not calling us to go out and marry women of this nature and this lifestyle, what we do see is that we understand and recognize and grasp the truth is that God is a God of redeeming love. He is a God of covenantal love, that it's not based on if I'm good or bad or if I'm able to do this. It's not performance Christianity. God doesn't love me because of what I do. God loves me because of who he is. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Listen to this. That you may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If God can love the nation of Israel, and Hosea can love Gomer, then how can we question if God can love us? I've got a friend named Bernie, and he was telling me this story one time. Um, He said we were on vacation, and we were walking downtown, and we were walking up on this water fountain, and he said, I'd always said, I'm not going to let my kids throw a coin in the fountain because I don't believe in wishes. We don't make wishes. We're people of faith. We pray. He said, but my, my, my kid, my, my oldest kid said, Dad, you have a couple of coins. I just want to throw it in there, and I'm not going to make a wish. He said, okay, okay. So he said, I reached in my pocket, and he said, all I had was two pennies. He said, but I gave him two pennies. And he said, real quick, my younger son looked at me and said, Dad, I, I want a coin. I want a penny. I want to throw a penny in there. And he said, I reached in my pocket and realized I didn't have any more coins. And I looked at my older son and he looked at me and realized I was about to ask him for one of the coins. And real quick he just threw them in. <laughs> and I had to look at my youngest son and say, son, I don't, I don't, I don't have any more coins. I'm out of pennies. He's like, Dad, you saved I could have a penny. Why did he get two pennies? I got no pennies. He's like, son, and he said, I looked at my wife and said, Anna, do you have any pennies? I'm like, I don't have a change purse, I no pennies. He said, he started crying. He said, Dad, you said I, why did he? And we've all been there. He said, so I reached in my pocket and I pulled out a dollar. Nobody throws dollars in there. And this is going to be like the best. He said, so I knelt down. I got real personal with my son. He said, I'm going to give you a dollar. He said, but Dad, I want a penny. He was like, this is George Washington. This is better than a penny. He said, Dad, I want a penny. I can't throw that. That's paper. He said, this is a 100 pennies. Just trust me. Here, ball it up. Throw it in there. He said, I want a penny. It just wasn't good enough. We do that all the time. We want to live in the here and now And play with pennies when God says, I want to bless you so much greater. And what I'm wanting to give you is so much better because my son is better. My son is stronger. My son is more loving. My son is more merciful. My son is more forgiving. My son is more graceful. My son died for you the things that you and I try to hold on to that we feel like keep us back, the pennies in our life that keep us back from being sold out to the love of God and embracing that I may not feel lovable, I may not feel loved, no one may have ever told me that they love me, but I choose to believe by faith that there's a God in heaven and that he loves me. I don't know how, I don't know when it started, but I just believe that he does. Would you pray with me with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? God's plan to redeem sinners like you and I started a long time ago. I don't know everybody in this church, but I know a lot of people, and I can tell you that I don't know anybody that's perfect. I don't know anybody that hasn't had some type of a checkered past. I don't know anybody who has a relationship with Christ that at some point did not have a relationship with Christ, and God stepped in and redeemed them and redeemed me. And if he can save me, I know what he can do for you. and our world tries to paint a picture now that's very warm and very fuzzy, that God's going to forgive everybody for everything, even if they don't come to him. The problem with that is that is not what God's word says. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. That it is a deliberate act of faith. It takes humility to repent of your sins. And I know in a room this size, it may be a little awkward to you to think, well, if I go down there, who knows what people are going to think. You know what people are going to think? Praise God. I remember doing that. Or... I wish I had the strength to do that. In a moment, we're going to stand. And we're going to sing. And some of our pastors are going to be down front. We would love to pray with you. We would love to encourage you. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you've never made it public, we'd love to talk to you about what those next steps look like. Maybe you just want to come and spend some time just basking in the presence of the Father at the altar. Whatever God tells you to do, you be faithful. And know that our loving God calls you to himself. Father, I'm grateful that your word is filled with people who are unsavory, who are broken, who are far from you. And we see that, Father, you are quick to love, quick to forgive, and quick to call us your own. So, Father, I pray for the men and women, the students that are in this room, Father, for the marriages that were represented, for the broken lives that fill these rows. Would you move and would you have your way? Father, would you, would you create in us such an awe of who you are that, Father, we would obey and worship you, not out of duty. Not out of requirement or expectation, but out of gratitude and love. You are a good God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.